the Los Angeles Times, this is The Envelope, the podcast, your ultimate guide to award season. I'm one of your hosts, Mark Olson. And I'm your other host, Yvonne Villarreal. Every week, our podcast showcases key voices across both TV and film. How are you doing this week, Yvonne? Mark, it's May. How is it May already? But of 2021. I know. I just feel like my life is slipping away each month. I'm just kind of like, oh my God, more time has been wasted that I haven't done something. Are you feeling more optimistic? I mean, I uh, recently had my second vaccination shot. And so I'm I'm feeling very positive about that. And I'm like counting the days for my like two weeks for my second shot. Now I'm trying to like psychologically get ready to re-enter the world. I'm not there yet. Like I want to figure out when I'm going to feel like, okay, I'm going to go to the movies today. Have you thought about that? I mean, I've obviously thought about that a lot. I can't wait to do that. Now I'm like dorkily... Like, well, I want to be sure I see the right movie. You got it. It's been so long. It's got to be a good one. And I got to see it at the right theater. And it's become a whole thing. So, Well, hopefully one day we can go see a film together. I miss those days, Mark. We've done it before. We have. I've been to your screenings. I've watched your Q&As. And I just hope that it's not long before we're back in a dark theater watching a good movie. I completely agree. But you have been busy, Yvonne. Who did you talk to this week? Well, someone that I know you've talked to before, Mark, Kate Winslet. And she plays a police detective, like a a jaded police detective. Is there any other kind? (laughs) Right, exactly. Not on HBO. Um, And she's investigating a murder in her small hometown in Pennsylvania. The series is Mayor of Easttown. And you may have guessed it. She plays mayor. She's unbelievably stoic and determined, sometimes bullish, sometimes careless because of how bullish she is. But her love of her family and the lengths that she will go to to protect them are overwhelming. And I think they consume her. And now our colleague Meredith Blake wrote a fantastic story about Kate's, how hard she worked to get the Delco dialect, this very specific accent. The two of you talked about that, didn't you, Yvonne? Yeah, she even did a little bit of it for us. So it was fun to sort of hear her talk about like what she listened to, to sort of get that accent down. And we, you know, also spent some time talking about her trips to Wawa, which is, for those that don't know, a chain of gas stations and food marts on the East Coast. Mark, have you ever stepped foot into a Wawa? I never have been in a Wawa. I've not spent that much time in Pennsylvania. And when I was growing up in the Midwest, though, I spent a lot of time at uh, your Quick Trips, your Circle Ks. Those were those were my spots. I'm an AM, PM kind of gal, but, you know, sometimes I dabble elsewhere. And as always, I'm looking forward to that conversation. And we'll be right back with Yvonne and Kate Winslet after this quick break. Hi, this is Harry Littman, L.A. Times legal columnist and host of the Talking Feds podcast, a roundtable discussion that brings together prominent former government officials, journalists, and special guests. This year, we're covering everything you need to know about the presidential transition with guests that include Valerie Jarrett, Senator Amy Klobuchar, and Congressman Jamie Raskin. So tune in everywhere that you find podcasts.
Welcome back to The Envelope. We're giving our colleague Glenn Whip a break from the podcast after a hearty Oscar season. And so here's Yvonne's conversation with Kate Winslet. See you on the other side. Well, Kate, thank you so much for joining me today. You are welcome. Thank you for having me. Of course. Well, I mean, it's been nearly a decade since your last TV role, HBO's adaptation of Mildred Pierce. And obviously you've stayed busy with film roles, but were you getting or reading much TV scripts in the time since? I was. I mean, I will, yeah, I will say, I think, because television in the last 10 years, it's transformed to be in a TV show and to go directly into people's front rooms, especially now, especially in the last 15 months of all of our lives, is really something very special. And I find the medium of television incredibly exciting now. I really do. Aside from anything else, you get to tell so much more story. You know, I think this is often something that people perhaps don't necessarily think about, doesn't really occur to them. You know, a film is an hour and 40 minutes or however long it is, and that's it. That's that's the time you get to tell your tale. Whereas with television, you know, with Mildred Pierce, five hours. With Mayor of Easttown, seven hours. And that's very, very exciting. You can really get under the skin of that character and the world that they live in, where they come from, to become part of the heartbeat of a show that involves so many moving parts, much bigger than just yourself. It's really thrilling. So I love television. Is there a character from your film career that you would have liked to spend more time with in like a TV series? I think Clementine Krasinski in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. She should have had her own show, man. Like she should have 100% had her own (laughs) series. And you can kind of imagine the multiple seasons of Clementine. (laughs) I'd love to know what color her hair was when she was 45 like I am now. (laughs) Kate, I want this desperately. How do we make this happen? I don't know. Isn't that a great idea though? Can you imagine she'd be just like lying around with like, you know, pink hair, eating loads of fake foods and... (laughs) Would she be in leggings? Oh, yes, thousand percent. (laughs) Yeah. And they'd probably, you know, they'd probably be like red with, you know, penises on them or something. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get right into Mayor of Easttown. I mean, you play the title character who is a police detective in a Philly suburb. And, you know, when we meet Mayor, she's in this moment of personal crisis. You know, she was once a hero in the town where she lives, like this all-star basketball player in school. But she's sort of kind of lost that status because she can't solve this case of a missing girl. And we sort of see her that, you know, she's past her glory days and sort of stuck and broken. What specifically about Mare made you want to play her? Well, I think, you know, as you just said, she's, she's stuck and broken. But what's so glorious about her is that she doesn't wear the mantle of a person who is broken. You know, at first glance, she's very tough. She's gritty. She, you know, she's strong. She's also warm. You know, she's got this side to her that is irresistibly lovable, even though she infuriates the living crap out of people. You know, so and she's she's vulnerable as well, but really tries to hide that. She's very much a functioning woman who's trying to keep it together. And I love the fact that here is a middle-aged woman, a mother and a grandmother, who has grown up in Easttown, knows everyone, knows their personal stories, and they all in turn know hers. And so, you know, the way in which she tries to just, 
keep going, keep it together, sometimes just get through the day, and does, you know, she's pulling it all off. But underneath her, there is, of course, this grief, this deep emotional struggle that is almost defining her, the less and less that she's dealing with it and confronting it. And I found that really, really intriguing because it's a multidimensional thing, grief, you know. It's there, it's constantly there. It doesn't matter It doesn't matter how much time has gone by, but if a person hasn't actually processed that level of pain, it can manifest itself in sometimes some really quite dangerous and damaging emotional ways. And and that does happen as Mare starts to unravel, as she starts to try and solve this crime, the murder that happens at the end of episode one. And of course, Mare is in charge of that case. It's up to her to prove it to the town once again, that she can be something, she can count for something, and she can still look out for people. And it's about community too, you know. In a funny way, it's really not like a classic cop drama. I don't think it really fits into that genre almost, because whilst the murder is, it's, a, it's one part of our narrative, there are many other elements, you know. There are lots of overlapping stories, people's lives in Easttown, their strength in keeping it all together and looking out for one another and and, and Mare doing her best along the way. And also, all of those people in that community know about Mare's personal grief and they dare not bring it up to her. So there's sort of, you know, all eyes on, on everyone at various different moments. It gets very personal, gets quite complex. I'm curious what that unlocked for you about Mare, like knowing that she's part of this town where... There really is no difference between what's personal and professional. Like everyone knows your business and like, you know, everyone when you're stepping outside. What did that sort of tell you about who she is? Well, it told me that she, you know, she was born and raised there. That's how she was raised. She was raised to understand community and family. It's in your DNA, you know, learning to accept people for all their faults and all their differences and trying not to judge, you know, just trying to get along, get by And, you know, making the show was, it was a very, very intense experience. I'm not going to lie, playing this role really kind of knocked it out of me. And we were a tight-knit bunch, you know. We were a a close group of not just actors, but crew as well. And, And that was really key, I have to say, in doing something like this, because the shoot was very long. It was nearly, it was like 120 days in the end. It's a very long time. You know, a film shoot can be anything from 45 days to 65 days. You know, you're thinking about double the length of shooting, you do have to all get along. And, and we had an amazing committed group of people working on this show with us. And um, it helped. It helped with that community energy and atmosphere. And, and then COVID hit right in the middle, of course. You know, of course, I came back to the UK, was with my family, etc. But I was still in my mind playing mayor. And, uh, and so to go back to work post the big bulk of lockdown in September. And I've, I only really feel like I just finished playing her. We finished in December. And uh, and also it's still happening as well, because I was an executive producer on the show. So every edit of every episode, I'm a part of. And yeah, it's, it's exciting. It's very exciting. I read, you know, as you mentioned, Mayor of Easttown was in the throes of production when COVID hit and you stopped in, I think it was early March and didn't resume until September. And I read that some of the scenes had to be sort of rejiggered due to COVID protocols. Is that right? Like four-person scenes became two-person scenes. 
Were you worried about, you know, how those changes would impact the series? No, I wasn't actually because we were in such good hands with our writer and showrunner Brad Inglesby. He just rolled with it, you know, just got creative, you know. We still had some larger crowd scenes, but social distancing measures were obviously in place. And yes, we definitely had less people. There's a pivotal sequence of scenes that happens in episode seven, early seven. And uh, and those had to be just pared back a little bit, so, you know, a little less people. It wasn't to the detriment of the show, actually. It was okay. It was okay. But of course, you know, suddenly we couldn't have scenes where there were people crammed close together at a, at a rock concert, for example. And we did have a scene like that. And that was changed, adapted. It wasn't dropped completely, but we made it something else. It turned into a sort of an intimate radio show recording of of something. So yeah, you know, you just get creative, like we like we all have just done. You know, I mean, look at us now. I probably, under normal circumstances, would be doing a junket in Los Angeles and you and I would be sitting across a table from each other. And here we are, and it's working out fine. You know, you just kind of find your way through, don't you? But because the process was different, like I, as you said, I, I've been doing interviews over Zoom like this much of the time in pandemic. I think, like, if I were to go back on the job it would always be on my mind. Am I safe right now? Did that person just sneeze too hard? Is stuff coming at me? Like, did you find when you were on set, did it impact your thought process? It didn't. And I'll tell you why. Because so HBO had five shows go back and ours was the only one that didn't shut down again because our COVID protocols were so adhered to. They were so strict. We had daily testing, twice weekly PCR testing as well as the rapid test that we did every day. And every single crew member on set wore a mask and a face covering, face shield of some kind, all day. So from September to December, when we were back, there were some crew members who I just didn't see their entire face for the whole time I was there. We actually had new crew members, a good handful of new crew members. And I actually don't know really what those people ultimately looked like because I could only ever just see their eyes or their hair. And so I felt very protected, very protected, very safe. You were not allowed to set foot on set in the morning unless you had been cleared for COVID after your rapid test was done. And yeah, HBO and our COVID compliance team, they did amazingly well, I have to say. And also outside of that cast and crew, sort of living by the rules, you know, social distancing, absolutely. No sort of impromptu, you know, drinks, parties or Sunday lunches. We just didn't. We just, we really stuck to the rules and it, and it worked. And we're very lucky that we didn't shut down again. Well, we m- must talk about the accent. You've done many accents in your career, but how did nailing down the Delco accent compare? Because I wonder how Mare's mindset of this idea of being lost and broken, how does that figure into you finding that voice for her and how that weighs into her voice or influences it. It's interesting because I I realized that as I was learning the dialect, it was definitely affecting the emotional register of the voice I was kind of finding for Mare. And actually her register is a bit deeper than my own. You know, my voice is quite bright and spiky and I go up and down a lot. and I have sort of like a bouncy tone (laughs) to my voice and quite clippy. I think, to an American ear. That's how English people speak. And we kind of, it's sort of like a snappy, clippy way of talking. Whereas the Delco, it's much more like that. It's like it's down and flatter. And it's sort of much more, I don't know, it's sort of a voice that exists really inside the body. I know that sounds crazy, but 
you know, some voices can be right up in, in, in the head, you know, quite nasal, for example. But with the Delco dialect, it's a, there's something about the, you know, the quality of it that's just way lower and, you know, kind of, you know, just it's just sort of in, entrenched in whomair was, you know, it's sort of it's in, in, embedded emotionally into her. And because she did, she was born there, she was raised there, I had to do it pretty darn, <laughs> pretty darn well. Um, and it was, yeah, it was, it was a little crazy making, you know, I'm not going to pretend it wasn't. But for me, the thing, the reason it was crazy making actually is because there are sounds that are made within the Delaware County, the Delco dialect that are very strong and could easily be pushed into a sort of a caricature voice. And I didn't want to create a voice, I wanted to create a person. And the voice had to just be secondary to that. So for me, the goal and the hardest part of all of it was doing it and doing it well enough that it just sort of disappears. And you don't then hopefully hear me doing it. It's pretty hard not to hear a Delco dialect, though, let me tell you. Was there a phrase or even a passage that would warm you up? Like, I remember Ewan McGregor would read this poem before doing Fargo to help him get the muscles moving. Was there something like that for you? or No, there wasn't a specific phrase, actually. But I did, I had lots of dialect samples of, of local people. And there was one woman named Trish Loria. Hi, this is Trish Loria. And uh, I used to listen to her. I used to listen to her every single day on the way to work, every single morning in the car and on the way home, same thing. So her voice would set me up. <laughs> I love that. Trish Loria. Yeah. It's all dedicated to Trish Loria. <laughs> I also need to hear more about Wawa because I know Brad, the show's creator, really encouraged you to visit it to get a sense of the vibe when you first got to town. Talk a little bit about what that did for you, like how you absorbed that into your character. Before I started filming, I was preparing and researching, you know, doing my stuff that I always do for probably about five or six months beforehand. And I thought, how do I even connect with where I'm going? So I subscribed to the Delco Times. So I would read this newspaper every day and there would regularly be some article about Wawa or some offer or something so to me, it kind of became this, it almost felt like a mythical place, Wawa. And so by the time I got there, I was like, oh, look, it's real. It was like Lapland. <laughs> it's Wawa. <laughs> That's so funny. And so, I don't know, like walking into a Wawa, like ultimately felt, it was kind of an honor in a funny way because I <laughs> built up this, to me, that was the heart of Delco was Wawa. And to, to sort of finally walk through the door of a Wawa, I don't know, I felt like, oh, yes, I'm here. I belong. This is where it's at. <laughs> Wawa. <laughs> what are must-gets when I walk into a Wawa? Must-gets. Oh, well, I would only honestly get coffee, really. But I did just like hanging out in there. But, you know, Evan, Evan Peters, he ordered a couple of times. He would say, oh, you got to try the gobbler, the gobbler. And it was this gigantic... So it's a this gigantic sub, basically, or hoagie. It's this huge hoagie. And, uh, and it's like turkey and the stuffing. It's basically a Thanksgiving meal in a hoagie, a hoagie. <laughs> yeah. He, he, he was like, ah, oh, God, I just eat that thing and I just pass out. I'm like, I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised, Evan. <laughs> 
Oh. <laughs> I want an entire spinoff on Evan and this gobbler. I, yeah, I do too. You need to get it. You need to get him on the show and ask him about the <laughs> that gobbler. Is, that's so funny. <laughs> For those who don't know, Kate's talking about Evan Peters, who plays Detective Colin Zabel in the series. One of the things I really enjoyed in the series are your character's interactions with her mother, who is played by Jean Smart. The two balance each other in such an interesting way. You know, the way they speak to each other is so real and and genuine, like the conversations and frustrations between mothers and daughters. How was Jean as a scene partner? Oh, Jean was just amazing i i i still call her mummy i i <laughs> so we we text each other as mummy and mare she was just terrific you know i mean she the comic timing you know she can turn humor into punctuation by just doing an inhalation of breath in a certain way and a flicker of an eye and i would just be in fits sometimes we couldn't really look each other to, look at each other too much because we would just crack up laughing The great thing about the relationship that we have on screen, Helen and Mare, is that they love each other so much, but they get stuck with how they're supposed to kind of express that or show that. Mare's not really great with huge displays of love and affection, particularly in a family way. She's always like, hey, you know, just don't be like, don't do that. Like, don't cry, not in public, God. She's, uh, you know, hey, don't like pat me on the back. She's, (laughs) she, she has sort of issues with things like that. So, so yeah, Mare and Helen, you know, well, Helen lives with her, like we were saying. So, you know, two matriarchs in the one house. Woof, that's tricky. That's a, tr- that's a tricky thing, very tricky thing. And, you know, they just don't always get along, didn't always see eye to eye, you know, but they have this sort of honesty gene where they just can't help, they just can't resist being <laughs> brutally honest with one another, sometimes to a, the point of being so tactless that it's just rude. You know, typical mother and daughter spats that would often result in the slinging of like caustic verbal grenades and sometimes food as well being slung. <laughs> but it was great. And we, we, we would improvise a lot and yeah, just really look out for each other. You know, she'd often say to me, honey, do you think I should try this? Should I, should I just try? Hey, I want to try something. Should I just try that? Maybe. I don't know. Will that work? And I'd say, yeah, give it a go. She'd go, Okay, 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 I'll try, I'll try. And then she'd do something utterly brilliant. And I'd say, well, you can't do it like that because I'm going to wet myself laughing. We're never going to get through the take. (laughs) Well, my colleague Meredith Blake spoke with Jean and she mentioned that you guys shared a house and that you were the best cook. Yay! (laughs) We did share a house, yeah. So when we went back to work in September... We just wanted to find ways to keep everyone really as, as safe as possible. And and Guy Pierce and I had actually had to quarantine together and live in this house together, which we knew for sure we were doing because we had a couple of intimate moments. So, you know, what do you do with two actors who have intimate scenes? Well, you just stick them in the same house. So Guy and I had this set up and Angari, who plays Siobhan, Angari Rice, who plays my daughter Siobhan, she was also there with her mum, who is also called Kate. So they were living with us too. And then eventually Jean as well. And yeah, we would kind of, take it in turns to cook a little bit. Although I will say that Jean Smart does make the best pesto I've ever tasted. Just thinking about it now makes me slightly get a, get a watering mouth. She absolutely does. But we would take it in turns to cook, take it in turns to take out the trash, take it in turns to do the dishwasher. Like it was family life, you know. It was just for the last portion, so the bulk of our shoot 
was not like that. But it's nice to know that we sort of ended it that way. Yeah, it was really fun. You know, I'd go to bed at night and I'd think, oh, should I turn out the hallway light? Because I'm not sure if Jean, I think her call time is earlier than mine. Oh, maybe I'll just leave the hallway light because those back stairs are a little dark. I don't want her to like trip. So, <laughs> yeah. I wish we had cameras set up. I'll tell you what you would have wished you had a camera set up on was was me and Guy Pierce going through the trash because he is absolutely obsessed with recycling, which is wonderful. And of course, as am I. But when I say he's obsessed, he would not put any cans in the recycling that had not been washed in the dishwasher. Right. Amazing. Amazing. But Guy Pearce was my, my, my teen idol. He was my, compl- my obsession when I was 11 years old. So we'd be going through the trash and I'd be like, Guy, not in the fantasy. I hate to say it, but this is not what I... This was like not... not this is not the mind. version of what I had in mind, doll. I've got to be honest. There was a door. There was a patio door in this house we were staying. It was a fantastic house. It was a patio door that we were staying with that would, the door would not shut. It just wouldn't shut properly. It just wouldn't close. It was almost like the safety lock had gotten stuck. And so it just wouldn't shut properly. <laughs> he would say, oh, Kate, darling, can you just quickly, I just want to give this door a really good slam. <laughs> I'd be like, okay. He'd say, you know what? If you could just like, just lie down on the ground and just, if you could just like give it a shove with your foot and I'll just yank it at the same time. So I'm lying on my back with my feet up against this door. And I'm like, again, not in the fantasy, guy. <laughs> Not in the fantasy. So he's like, I'll oh, shut up. One, two, three, push. I'm like, no, this is not in the fantasy, guy. Now we need a romantic comedy with you too, because this is comedy. It was, but to be fair, we, I, I would actually say to him, as I was, you know, trying to ram this door shut, I would actually say to him, we're going to end up saying this when we're doing press for this show. And people are going to, it's the only thing people are going to end up talking about. Which is fair enough because it is, it is quite fun. I am aware that it is quite a funny story. <laughs> we have so many projects to sell just from the conversation we've been having. I've all the ideas are coming. <laughs> a through line of the series is the trauma and abuse of women, and I, I wondered if playing a detective who is so close to those experiences sort of changed or shaped your understanding of what that trauma is like i mean it just it just made it all the more horrifying and distressing it didn't change it for me it, it just amplified it yeah horrifying and actually the well i won't go into actually no won't go into detail about that because that could potentially <laughs> i wasn't about to do a spoiler but i was about to just reveal possibly something that happens in episode four but i won't this will come out before episode five so you're fine before episode five. Yeah, no, it's okay. I'm not going to say what I was going to say. <laughs> um, in the case of one of the characters who goes missing, a, the miss, a missing person, as you say, Katie Bailey is a missing person. She's been missing for a year. Her mother, Dawn Bailey, um, who is an old school friend of Mare's, who she knows very, very well. Her mother, Dawn, is really angry at the police, she feels they just haven't done enough work to try and find her daughter. And that storyline of Katie Bailey and what has actually happened to her, we did end up pairing it back a little bit because it was, in fact, it it was really extremely detailed and traumatic and actually based on a real story that Brad Inglesby told us about. We did have to be very careful because 
We didn't want for the, it's a fine line. You don't want to tip the balance into making something that is so real that it's almost could feel like a documentary. You know, it, 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 it isn't that. It's about things that happen to real people. And I feel that the show is really embedded in the sense of humanity and reality and community. It's also about mercy and friendship and compassion. And it's, it's about many, many things. So we had to be really careful not to take away from the heartbeat of the show too much in that regard. There were, there were lots of things about playing this character, even the preparation of the role, that were just, you know, were, that were extremely disturbing. Even holding a gun. I'd never held a gun. Learning how to use a gun. I didn't like that part at all. Um, I didn't like that part, not one bit. Our nation has endured. Let's make sure the facts do, too. Pay $1 for eight weeks and get a perspective unlike anywhere else. Go to latimes.com slash subscribe. Los Angeles Times, the state of what's next. Hey, this is Andy Bernstein, Hall of Fame photographer for the NBA and host of the Legends of Sport podcast. For the past three seasons, we've spoken to icons such as Magic Johnson, Steve Kerr, Jerry West, and Sue Bird. And not just from the world of basketball, but legends of all sports, including owners, superfans, and members of the sports media. Find new episodes of Legends of Sport on the LA Times app or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. See, this is the type of podcast you gotta have. <laughs> You know, Kate, I know you've said in another interview how you served as a quasi-intimacy coordinator during the filming of the series. I think it was during um, a scene involving Angori Rice, the young actress who plays your daughter. And you mentioned how you hadn't felt that sense of safety as a young actor when shooting those kinds of scenes. It's almost like you and Mare are in positions where you're trying to stop the cycle of trauma. Did you view it that way? You know, I have to say that, like, I always take, take it very seriously, the position that I'm in as an actress who, you know, I've worked my way up. I started when I was young, and here I am as a middle-aged woman, essentially, with a lot of experience under my belt, and and a very profound awareness of what it means to be a vulnerable young actor who wants to do a good job, wants to please everyone, but at the same time is still finding their voice. And I think sometimes just turning to a young actor and saying, how do you feel about this? Is this okay? And just making them feel heard and supported and having that steady hand at their back sometimes is just enough. And it doesn't always get forgotten, but in the chaos of a shooting day when you're trying to, you know, you're trying to get your shots and not lose the light and etc. Sometimes those things can get overlooked. And I've always had an awareness of what those young actors might need by way of support. And I did feel that in playing Mare, we had a lot of young actors on this show to really look out for. And part of that was genuinely looking after them. And part of it was just making them always feel absolutely included and equal. You know, it was very important that we all had, for example, it's going to sound like a silly thing, 
But I wanted to make sure that every single actor, whether they were cast number one or cast number 18, had the same size trailer. So everyone was just equal right off the bat. It was just we were all in this together. There was no hierarchy. I absolutely did not want that to be the case. And I was very lucky that I was able to help in that situation because of being an executive producer. But yes, with Anne Gowrie, when she had to shoot this intimate scene, you know, sometimes it's just about providing that, just making the, the space a little bit safer and being able to say to that young actor, just tell me, if you don't feel okay, I can be the one to go to the director and say, actually, I'm not sure about putting my hand there or I'm not sure about this kiss maybe lasting that long or, or just sometimes saying, how are you going to shoot this just so I know what to expect? You know, sometimes as a young actor, you don't know if it's your place to ask those questions. And of course it is. Anyone can ask those questions. But people get confused in their mind and they're just not sure. And sometimes as well as a young person, talking about intimate moments just in life can be really embarrassing and awkward. You know, you're still learning yourself and learning, you know, how you feel about, you know, intimacy full stop. So to be able to, I think, just give her that give her that sort of safe space and, and, and make her feel okay. Um, it was a privilege, you know. It's a privilege to be able to be in a position like that for someone. When did you feel you could use your voice? I mean, the Me Too movement and the example set by women who have spoken out has helped others really feel empowered to do so as well. And you have expressed regrets about men you've worked with in the past who've faced allegations and I'm curious what that journey was like for you in terms of reflecting on how you're using your voice and thinking about what you can do differently in your own work and behavior. I mean, to really answer your question, I think we are, we are living in a time where women are instinctively holding space for each other in new ways. And I feel that our voices are being not just heard differently, but really really received in a different way. And in terms of sort of when did I feel like I found my voice? Listen, honey, I'm just like the rest of us. I feel like I am in a way still finding it. And I definitely get the sense that a lot of what's happening in the last two years, as you say, with hashtag me too and so on, I think it's really made a difference already on a younger generation. I mean, there are younger women now who who really just enjoy themselves more, who have, I think, a bit more confidence when it comes to speaking their mind and speaking up and speaking out. And, you know, we, my generation, I think we spent way too long shying away. You know, I think also that finger-pointing culture that went on, you know, there's this, there was a sort of a a, a kind of a slightly blurry moment when there was a lot of, well, you can't really say that because you said this in an interview 12 years ago. Well, can't people grow and change? Like now more than ever, the world is evolving. Let people evolve. Let them learn, you know, let them hold themselves accountable for things. You know, it's like saying to a vegetarian or a vegan, well, you can't really just go plant-based because you've been eating hamburgers for 15 years. That's just silly. So I feel like this is an exciting time because I think the finger pointing is getting less and less. And I think that we are, as women, we are judging each other less. So we're creating a more compassionate, kinder environment for not only our generations now, 
but the younger generation. And of course, they're the ones really who are going to take the lead eventually and, and, and really hopefully change the world. Well, I have to tell you, and I, and I know you get this a lot now, but that first week when everything was just starting to get real and places were starting to go into lockdown, the power went out in my neighborhood and I was totally terrified, irrationally terrified. And my friend invited me over and I was hesitant because I'm like, I don't know if I should, but I ended up going and he made me watch Contagion. And it's probably the worst thing he could have done to me. <laughs> I was just like... Why are you doing, I had never seen it. But then like at the end, as I left, he gave me a bottle of hand sanitizer on my way home and it was like the only thing I had. But when you were making that film, did it cause any anxiety for you thinking about whether this could really happen? Well, I think we never really imagined that it would happen. It was horrifying to suddenly be in a situation where I was like, oh my God, those KN95 masks that we wore on Contagion. Oh my God, we've got to get those. Ned, quick. Suddenly it did feel like we were living Contagion. And we had worked with brilliant experts at CDC who helped us with the factual scientific side of the film and really helped us to actually create the virus. And yeah, I mean, they were speaking to my friend Scott Z. Burns who wrote Contagion and saying it's coming, absolutely coming. Take it seriously and take it seriously now. Did you go back and watch it at all during the pandemic? No, my darling, I did not. <laughs> I didn't. I wanted to watch things like Downton Abbey and like put my socks on and, you know, have tea. And, and, and I still feel like we're kind of binge watching. Well, actually, we haven't done a huge amount of binge watching, but hopefully people are going to binge watch Mare. Wouldn't that be exciting? Um, <laughs> but I think it was good. Like it made me more conscious of everything I touch. And I think that was important. It made me think about, oh. It does, you know, suddenly, suddenly you have a, an awareness of what the R naught actually means and, you know, fomites and mm -hmm. it absolutely, yeah, it, for sh it, it definitely, definitely does. You know, the number of times you touch your face in any one day, you know. I mean, I can't remember what the number was, but it was something like 500 times you touch, it, you touch your face. I mean, ugh. I think, I think we're, you know, we're a nation of, or a planet of people who, unless you live in New Zealand, Iceland or Australia, who just don't touch our faces anymore, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, Kate, recently you worked with James Cameron shooting Avatar 2, and the last time you worked with him was on Titanic. How was it being on set with him again? Jim was... You know, I am going to say it, and I think he probably would admit it himself. Like, he's just a calmer human being all round. Like, everything about who he is, how he lives his life, his wonderful family life, I think really grounds him and has has, has made a, a huge difference to who he is. Also, he's plant-based, entirely plant-based now. And he would tell you himself, he just feels really well and healthy and happy. And, you know, it was wonderful to see him... A sort of a whole brand new gym in a, in, a, in a funny way. He's still as brilliant, more brilliant than, of course, he ever was before as a filmmaker and technician. And my God, I mean, the guy is just amazing. You know, and I have to say, I have thought all the way through this pandemic, you know, if there's one person who's getting all of this right, it's Jim. I've always said if the, if, if, if the world is in crisis, that's the man you want to be with. He would have probably already had, you know, an escape plan or something in place for his family that would have been, you know, thought through and finessed and worked out a long time ago. It was fantastic to work with him again and to be part of 
the avatar experience, you know, when you go into that world of Pandora, like, you know, I have to say, like, you you full on drink the Kool-Aid, you are there, you know, you understand what it means to be not V and to think in the way that they do and to lead with truth and integrity and it's very, very powerful, important messages um, in that film and uh, it was very special to be part of it. Well, you're playing a female leader of a water tribe and you had to free dive and hold your breath. Like, what was that training like? I mean, I, you held your breath for seven minutes and 14 seconds? Yep. How is that possible? Yeah, I did. I did that. <laughs> I really did do that, didn't I? God, so cool. <laughs> the training, I love the training because it is intense and it is consistent. But what you do in this process of learning how to hold your breath for that long is you learn actually how to calm your calm your heart rate, slow your heart rate right down. And you know, there's a, there are many different breathing sequences that come into play, lots of physical and breathing exercises that you have to do. And obviously training, being in the water a lot and for a long time. So I just absolutely loved it. And there's something so, so magical about being on the bottom of a tank, holding your breath, totally calm, no bubbles, just hanging out there for like three minutes. It's crazy. Wow. Yeah, amazing. I loved it. It's the close to real meditation, I think, the closest I've ever come to real meditation. You know, I'm not, I, I can't meditate. My brain is, I'm always making like grocery lists and, you know, <laughs> and planning what I have to do next or tomorrow or, you know, got to go and pick up somebody from, you know, football practice. But yeah, it was a really, really calming experience. I just loved it. I loved it. Well, you know what's been that for me is the Calm series on HBO Max. And you narrated A Horse's Tale. So relaxing. Like it's something that I watch when like things are so overwhelming. It's really a fun project for you to be a part of, I imagine. It was a fun project, very much so. And I thought that, you know, The Horse's Tale, God, it was such a beautiful, beautiful film. <gasps> I just, I absolutely loved it. I found it utterly, utterly mesmerizing. And your horse's... I don't ride horses, actually. And in fact, I've always been a little bit fearful of them. I don't know why. I think just because they're so magnificent and powerful and strong and bigger than me. <laughs> There's something about an animal that is bigger than me that I find makes me feel nervous. But you're right. In The Horse's Tale, that film, it's just, it's very, very elegant and, and graceful and, and so interesting. And of course, you know, it makes you think, well, I could be a horse whisperer. I could just, <laughs> I could just go up and talk to the horses. <laughs> Of course. If you can hold your breath for seven minutes, you could be a horse whisperer, Kate. No, I can't. I go near I go I go near horses and they just run in the other direction. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we wrap, we like to ask our guests, you know, what they've been watching these days, what they recommend our listeners watch. What's your picks? No, I have to be honest, I am really pleased you've asked me this question. And I'm not gonna lie, I was just thinking to myself about fifteen minutes ago, I was like, hmm. If we finish the podcast in like 20, 25 minutes from now, I will be able to get maybe two episodes in before I have to go to bed. And I'm going to tell you, it's a French show. And I don't know how I didn't know about this before now, but it's called Call My Agent. Have you seen it? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It is absolutely brilliant. I want to be in that show. I want to meet all those wonderful actors. They are all 
utterly amazing. I sort of have these conversations with them out loud as the show is happening. I'm like, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Keep doing that. That's just so... And I'll turn to my husband. I say, how did she just do that? Because she's so funny. She is just so... Look, I mean, that is... That's, that is real acting. You know, it's kind of running commentary as we're watching this brilliant show. I, I, I love it. So that's... Yeah, that's what I would recommend. Call my agent. Subtitled. It's brilliant. Subtitled. Those are crucial. Yes. Yes. Crucial. Well, very good. That's a good recommendation. Kate, thank you so much. It was a pleasure speaking with you. And you. Thank you so much. I know, Yvonne, that was a, a terrific conversation with Kate Winslet, but I have to say, I really enjoyed hearing her uh, thoughts on Gene Smart's pesto. Oh my God. I almost wish that we could have a spin-off comedy between the two of them because now I just want to, or even like a reality show. You know, I like my reality TV. Like I just want to be in that house at that table as all of this is unfolding. I loved hearing about working with Gene Smart because Gene is somebody that I just think is such a stellar actress. Like, I love everything that she does since way back with Designing Women, okay? And she has a new series called Hacks on HBO Max where she plays a veteran uh, Las Vegas comedian who hires this TV writer to sort of help resuscitate her career. And it is so good. Like, to see her in this role is, like, amazing. Like, there's this one moment that involves fountain soda that is just like epic, epic. So that's a show that I've been watching, not to like segue really fast, but what have you been watching, Mark? You know, the pay streaming service, uh, the Criterion Channel, they recently, they do these like curated packages of movies and they have one they just put up recently about gambling movies. And I've been really enjoying some of the gambling movies. I watched House of Games, which was the first film directed by David Mamet. And it stars Joe Mantegna and Lindsay Krauss. Lindsay Krauss was Mamet's wife at the time, the mother of Zosha. It's a you know about con men. It's just a terrific, just like really cracking sort of little thriller. And then I also watched a movie called Atlantic City, which was uh, directed by Louis Maul. It stars Susan Sarandon and Burt Lancaster. It was actually nominated for Best Picture, and Lancaster was nominated, nominated for Best Actor. It got a number of other nominations. And that was just a really sweet but sort of oddball drama that is kind of about gentrification in a way in that it's about like Atlantic City in one of its sort of down phases. There's a number of other movies in the uh, Criterion's Gamblers collection that I'm really looking forward to making my way through. Have you picked up any tips? Uh, no, no. <laughs> I mean, I think that's funny. <laughs> House of Games is one of those movies where you think by the time it's done, that like, I know a thing or two about con men. Like you're going to go out and like grift somebody but I don't think it would really work. And I actually read that Ricky Jay, the sort of famed magician, that he invented a trick, like a grift for the movie because they were concerned about giving away the trick of like an actual like sleight of hand trick. So he invented a, a con for the movie. Oh my God. I don't have that kind of time. You know, I have to say the other thing that I've been watching just like in spurts, is ER because they recently had a reunion on Zoom. You know, I like those. I'll watch when they happen. And ER is like one of my favorite, favorite TV dramas of all time. And how is it on the rewatch? 
it stays classic. Were you ever an ER watcher? No. I watched St. Elsewhere when that was a show. So then I'm dating myself. So then when ER came around, I was like, I already watched this show. I've done this. Mark, you have to do it. But now I saw some clips just from that Zoom reunion. And I thought it was so funny that George Clooney said his wife has been watching ER. Yes. And I want a show of just that. (laughs) Kind of like people's cows. Let's just watch them watch ER. I'm down for that. Yeah. Like what's her commentary? What's his commentary? Like what? And then, you know, what is it like? After, I just, I want to know more. Well, I can moderate. I'm just saying, like, again, we are always thinking of ideas for ourselves, and I'm willing to take this for the team. So. I know, Yvonne, you've got another interview coming up. Who are you talking to next week? So I'm going to be speaking with Stephen Canals, the showrunner of the FX drama Pose. And for those that don't know, the series sort of explores the New York City ballroom scene in the 80s and 90s. Um, And Pose is currently in its third and final season. So we talked a little bit about knowing when it was time to end things. I just didn't want us to create a third season that felt like filler. That, that is the truth about why the story ended now. It's just, oh, the ending is there. And so do we just allow ourselves to write to the end? Or do we create a season that's just filler to then belabor us getting to the very end? I just envision like the true fans of the show watching it and being like, what is this? Like, why is this what you're giving us? I'm really proud of this final season. And I think that the audience will be as well. And you know, that really is a show that like so much of it was kind of about the world that they were depicting that it's been interesting, I think, to see how they've teased it out across three seasons. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see how they how they wrap it up. I'm just going to tell you now, Mark, episode six, episode six. I'm marking my calendar. Thank you for that tip. (laughs) The Envelope, the podcast is hosted by me, Mark Olson and my colleague Yvonne Villarreal. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our audio engineer is Mike Heflin. Special thanks to Mike for making our theme song. Thanks for listening and see you next week.